You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by PolarTech, bringing you the science of fabric, and by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels, and Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal, the AAHA. Last month, my wife gave me a tandem paragliding flight for a belated birthday present. Conditions weren't ideal on the day, and the flight only lasted a few minutes, but I loved it. I'm not about to take up a whole new sport, but I can see why lots of climbers do. Paragliding seems to offer a whole new way to observe and play in the mountains, and the possibilities seem endless. Exploring those possibilities is right at the heart of today's show. Our guests are German climber Fabian Buhl and Will Sim from the UK. In late July, they made the first ascent of a 5,800-meter rock and ice tower in the Hunza area of Pakistan. The climb itself was not unusually big or difficult. What made it unique was their approach. The two started the day having breakfast in Karimabad, the nearest big town, where they had been based all month. From about 3,000 meters, they flew their paragliders to the top of the glacier just below the unclimbed peak, landing at just under 5,000 meters. After a brief bivy, the two bagged the first ascent of the peak, rappelled back to their tent, and flew down to the valley. They were back in town for dinner. Paragliders evolved from parachutes, but today's models are designed to stay up in the air. Constructed with as many as 100 hollow cells that inflate in flight, a paraglider acts like a wing, and a skilled pilot can seek out thermals to stay aloft for hours and travel long distance in mountainous terrain. Certain climbers, especially in the Alps, have been using paragliders for decades to descend quickly from mountaintops or to enchain objectives. But as you'll hear in this episode, Fabi and Will are among a group of alpinists, including their friends Julian Dusser and Antoine Girard, who are experimenting with a newer idea, using their wings to approach mountains that might be too difficult or dangerous to access on foot. In effect, it's a whole new form of expedition. Assistant Editor Michael Levy spoke with Fabian and Will in early September about their Pakistan adventures. Hang on tight, it's a wild ride. Hey guys, I'm here with German climber Fabian Buell and British climber Will Sim to talk about their experiences combining paragliding and alpinism. They've been doing some pretty exciting things with this one-two punch, flying off the top of mountains after climbing them, flying to mountains and then climbing them. There are a lot of different ways that paragliding seems like it can change the game. So 
it's going to be interesting to hear about that and also what limitations there might be. So Fabian, Will, glad to have you today on the Cutting Edge podcast. Cheers. Yeah. Good to be here. Looking forward to talking about paragliding. Yeah. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. So people have been talking about paragliding and alpinism for nearly 40 years. In a 1988 feature in the American Alpine Journal, American climber John Bouchard wrote an article about this exciting new combination and how paragliding after climbing something offers great new possibilities to descend and stuff. But that's, again, 40 years ago. So what's different or new now compared to back then? I think a hell of a lot. So the I think that back then, climbing and flying, climbing and paragliding and skiing and paragliding had a bit of a collision maybe 30, 40 years ago, definitely in the, in the beginning of the 90s, where loads of climbers got really interested in flying because they saw the beauty of the concept of climbing up something and flying down. And that interest is exactly the same in us climbers and alpinists now. But there's been 30 or 40 years of progression within the sport of paragliding because it is a really new sport. Wouldn't you say, Fabi? I mean, in the early 90s, paragliding existed, but not at all in the same way as it exists now. It's a much, much newer sport than climbing. Yeah, definitely. So I think it's a newer sport and the prof- it got more and more professional. And I think why we can use it in the way we use it now it's not because we are like crazy better pilots or anything. It's just because the gear is so much more adapted to the style of climbing or also like we, that, uh, like it's lighter. It is easier to fly. It's not as sketchy as it was back in the years when you had, like they started to fly off from territory with like a wing that looks like a really bad speed wing right now. You know, it had only nine cells. And it must have been horrific to fly things like that. But I think all the major brands in paragliding and all the the really good pilots that are developing things, that ma- they make it yeah very accessible for us. So you're talking a little bit about the evolution of the gear. What has that looked like? How, was a was a a wing that much heavier? 30 years ago yeah definitely they were much heavier they didn't have the same glide ratio um they were much much sketchier to pilot so they didn't forgive like many mistakes but for example now you have wings that are i would say pretty safe and still they are like incredibly light like the wing i flew in pakistan it's a zeolite it's it's two kilos, you know, it's, it doesn't really, it doesn't weigh much. I think the vision was always there, but I think we are lucky that we fall into the generation maybe where the vision and the gear comes together. But I don't know how Will is seeing it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Um, it's a totally different sport with regards to gear and the stuff that somebody can do after two or three or four years of flying now is better than what the best pilot in the world could do after 10 or 20 years in the mid-90s or something. It's that bigger difference. And it's not their 
skill necessarily. I mean, it's partly, but it's it's largely the gear. But also, it's just forty or thirty years of people working out how flying works with these things as well. It's not just the gear. It's thirty or forty years of experimenting of how air works and how one of these inflatable fabric wings responds in air and people progressing in that kind of way as well on top of the gear of course they're kind of they can't be one without the other it's the gear and the progression of knowledge of using that gear for someone like myself who has never paraglided I, I, it's hard to to get an idea of exactly what goes into it i read a quote that you wrote on social media will from when you were learning and you said i'm learning that if you think paragliding is just sitting in the sky you are seriously mistaken there's a lot of stuff going on up there so what is involved in paragliding <laughs> yeah no i think it's very deceiving when you see somebody sitting up beneath a paraglider a thousand meters above you it looks like they're just chilling out watching netflix and rolling cigarettes but they're actually they're actually there's a whole load of things going on up there, but they're so far away and it looks like they're so immobile that it's quite hard to realize. When you see a cross-country paraglider fly, when you're on a cliff, on a belay, for example, this happens all the time in the Alps, and you see a cross-country paraglider coming past you 20 meters away from you, you realize that there's actually, it's a very dynamic thing and a wing is moving around a lot and the person is having to make lots of responses to keep this wing flying and not falling out of the out of the sky on top of making a thousand decisions about where you're going to find air that goes up, air that goes down, air that wants to kill you, air that feels nice to be in it. And I was definitely guilty of not understanding at all when when I was getting into paragliding, just how intense it is to really fly a paraglider well, rather than to use it more like a parachute and just come down which can also be very intense but it's there's some big fundamental differences between between those two things so when did you each start paragliding i think i started like four years ago um and will maybe one or two years later and so did you guys start paragliding mainly as a way to augment your alpine climbing or was it a separate thing at the beginning? No, definitely. I was starting only basically to fly down. And it was my only idea that I had at that time. But luckily, I soon realized that going down with a paraglider, it's not flying. It's going down. And it's fun. But I think if you really want to use the wing, you need to understand like an environment that you, are, you can't see. You know, it's a, it's a, like the air you cannot see and you cannot see rotors. Uh, you cannot see like wind, something that when you only go down, you will never understand it. So I think for me, it was the, the interesting thing of paragliding came like really learning to thermal, to fly cross country. And I think that makes it safer and it makes the possibilities obviously much, much bigger. And I think Will has like kind of a, similar approach to it and that's why it's so cool yeah no i was pretty similar i started paragliding because mainly thinking about descending from mountains which is a super classic climber's way of paragliding like fabi just said and i learned 
to do that. And then I very quickly realized that it was missing the point of actually paragliding and paragliding to embrace it completely and learn how to do the other types of paragliding, so like acro, which is throwing yourself around a bit like tricks and stuff. And then more importantly for me, what I'm like interested in is cross-country flying, so using air that's rising and using uh, air currents to travel long distances. That really captured me and became fascinating very, very early on. And I realized that that was just exponentially increase the scope of how you can use a wing in the mountains. So past use of paragliders in alpine settings for, for climbers is was mainly focused on descending. You climb something, you jump off and you get back to the, the pub much quicker or you get back to base camp much quicker. But that's it it there's less involved is what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, definitely um, going down and being back uh, early down, like on on a classical Mont Blanc day, it's super nice. You know, you do Mont Blanc, you land down uh, at midday, you have lunch. It's very tempting and it's very cool. But I think that being a better pilot, especially a better cross-country pilot, makes you realize things that you can do. For myself, I had like nearly two two and a half years i really i really couldn't even imagine like to travel or to do like fly somewhere and then climb it because yeah i wasn't experienced enough and i was like my thermals or my cross-country flying skill were so bad that they absorbed everything and now i think i can thermal I can fly somewhere. I can use it more like a, a way of transport without uh, distracting myself too much from like kind of climbing. And that's, I think, when you start you're using it in a way that you can actually fly somewhere and climb something afterwards. But also, I mean, the flying down thing, it's been happening for years. That's not new, really. In the 90s, even before that, people were doing amazing, amazing things with really bad gear uh, here in the alps in the himalaya off off big mountains off seven eight thousand meter mountains they were that's nothing new uh flying down from those things and you know there's the famous the famous uh occasions of people like uh, jean-marc bovan and 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 the likes here in chamonix in the early 90s linking up faces by uh hang glider and paraglider and that was really i think in the first boom of paragliding in the early 90s but then i think even the really the actual limits of paragliding itself was not much more than that it was pretty much just about flying down anyways the ability to use a paraglider like a a sailplane yeah you know like a glider plane that can cover huge distances that came in the years following so when did you guys really start thinking intensely and have any sort of aha moments of like we can use this to get into more remote and inaccessible mountains and make the approach quicker or that kind of thing it's or i mean it's quite it's it's a little bit special but here i live in the chamonix valley and it's just i it got to a point where i was one of one of uh, all my friends were flying (laughs) I was actually quite late taking it up compared to a lot of friends of mine. 
um, for using it as a descent technique like that. And and it's all around you. Uh, you see people flying, particularly in the last six or seven years, it's really had another boom, you could argue. And um, it's happening. Uh, you, you, people have, we, we ha- carry wings uh, when we ski. We carry wings sometimes when we're climbing, just on the off chance that we might use them. And they're so light, some of these... Uh, single purpose uh descending wings that that you can just have them in your bag and so for me it was kind of around me already in the last few years in the last uh you know between five and ten years and then it got to a point where i was like no okay now i really actually have to learn to do it um so that was that was the uh when i first saw it being used in that way but then it's only much much more recently um, particularly in and around before this trip with Fabi this year, and a little bit watching what Fabi and the other guys did the year before in Pakistan, that I really started thinking about how how a wing could be used to its absolute limit in in the in the big big mountains to access remote areas and things like that. Other than just how we use it here in Sham, which is basically a way to get down to the bar quicker and. Uh, and get home and have a shower quicker. <laughs> yeah, I think for me it was definitely similar. And the time when I really realized that I can use it in the mountains uh, to fly there, it was after last year's Pakistan, because we did some climb and skiing and also some climb and trying to climb easier mountains. But the, then I really, after this trip, I reflected a little bit of what we did. And then I really realized, I mean, with a big wing, we can transport a lot of gear. The weight is not a limit anymore. And we can just, like, around Karima, but especially, there is endless potential because there is endless endless 6,000, 7,000 meter peaks. It's a short cross-country flight in kind of nowadays cross-country flights. And we are not limited by bringing the gear. So that was definitely... For me, the reason to think more into this direction. And you guys aren't necessarily the the first people to to have this kind of realization. Like, oh, we can access the harder we can access peace easier with with a wing. I, there's a I read about a, an expedition in 2017 in Nepal where these French climbers approached Long Tang Lurung, but it's still you guys now seem to be doing more with it. Those guys didn't didn't make it up it's it's still not many people doing this it seems like definitely those guys are the same people that's so the the guys you're talking about there are the guys that uh they're friends of ours oh no way um, okay and uh i mean i I assume you're talking about julian and and antoine no correct correct yeah i mean uh that's who fabi was with in pakistan the year before for example so um so it's all you guys are all kind of part of the same school of thought and same guys thinking about this in the same way yeah definitely it's all like friends of ours we live probably in uh all around in the same place in france if you would say is the alps in france is one place uh <laughs> we have a good exchange i was with antoine with julien with uh, francois and Jojo the last year in pakistan and um antoine julien and guillaume they climbed uh, spantic in this style and I think, uh, yeah, that showed it's possible, you know, because Spantic has, for example, a much further cross-country flight than the peak we climbed. 
The only thing that is a little different at the peak we climbed at that time was actually we really had to bring a lot of gear and stuff. It was not only a glacier, it was actually technical climbing. But yeah, the idea and everything, it's it's quite old It's and it will be, it's evolving like any other sport, you know, like skiing and alpinism was also at some point a little mixed or not like seen together. Now there is uh, ski more like ski mountaineering. I think it's with paragliding, it will be going into the same direction a little bit. Yeah, that's a, that's a good comparison. That's the same comparison that John Bouchard makes in that in that article, isn't it? That you were you were mentioning in the mm-hmm. American Alpine Journal. He talks about skis being a part of an alpinist's um, toolkit, and he predicts that wings could be in the future. And and um, yeah, so it's the same comparison. So you guys. Uh, despite all these amazing things you're you're doing with it, and despite clearly how much you know about it, because you you guys are clearly students of of paragliding now, it's not like you've been doing it for decades here. Uh, again, the craft has changed so much. But what's the what's the learning curve for you guys? Are doing some pretty serious things after just three and four years? Yeah, it's maybe not the most recommendable. <laughs> 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 maybe not the best models, to be honest. Uh, I don't know. What do you reckon, Fabi? I mean, we're both really, really, really lucky with where we live. It's just a, it's a world away from living. For example, if I, if I lived in the UK, which is where I'm from, I mean, my progression would never, ever have been like it has been in the last few years. We both live in the French Alps. The weather is really good for flying a hell of a lot of the year. The terrain is absolutely world-class and not dissimilar to flying in the Karakoram, to be honest. It's, it's on yeah. a smaller scale, but it's basically an exact replica. It works by exactly the same rules. So we've super lucky to have that and and also to know some really, really good pilots who I make be climbers as well, but often aren't. They're just they're just paragliders. They they, they fly competitions and they they're really good mentors and so it's not a, it's a bit of not the best representation really. I mean, how many <laughs> hours did you guys log before you were you know going off doing doing some more serious things do you think yeah it's super hard to say like an exact hour yeah but i definitely think fly probably between 500 to nearly 700 hours a year like for me it's really my main activity right now and as Will said, I think we we live in an area where we are so lucky that the surrounding is perfect for in, uh, flying. And it's not only the the surrounding or the environment, like the the physic, like the mountains. It's also the people. Like here in the Southern French Alps, there are like a lot of really really good pilots, and they are not closed minded. Like they really want you to progress. And I think that's the thing why all these hours that we put in they also pay off quite soon and good and with like yeah with flying safer because we get a lot of really good feedback uh, a really a lot of good help and i think that changes a lot so i think it's crucial to be in kind of if you want to do the path that will and me did like with doing it really fast your progression i think that your mentors or your people are you are surrounded with it's very crucial in paragliding because 
you can do mistakes and some are not so bad, but you also can do some mistakes that won't be pretty good. After a break, we'll hear all about Fabian Will's climb in Pakistan this summer. Harness, check. Chalk bag, check. Grid fleece, check. For over 30 years, climbers have checked their gear lists to make sure they packed PolarTech. We love PolarTech fabrics for their lightweight warmth, quick drying performance, and ease of movement. Found in iconic apparel pieces of legendary outdoor players, PolarTech remains an essential piece of climbing equipment. You probably have one in your closet right now. Whether you wear your pullover or use it as a pillow, PolarTech helps bring a bit of comfort to the crag. PolarTech is the science of fabric. Born in Utah's Wasatch Mountains, Gnarly Nutrition is committed to fueling, educating, and inspiring athletes at all levels. Gnarly provides honest, effective, and great-tasting nutrition that is third-party tested. Gnarly's full line features science-backed products free of hormones, GMOs, proprietary blends, or anything artificial. Add Gnarly Nutrition to your training regime to help you send. Use code AAC20 for 20% off site-wide at gonarly.com. Loa Boots began as a village cobbler in Bavaria in 1923. Almost 100 years later, Loa is still based in that village and still building boots and shoes in Europe under the world's most stringent environmental and labor standards. From mountaineering and ice climbing boots to rock climbing shoes, hiking boots, and lightweight trail shoes, Loa is recognized worldwide for the uncompromising quality, fit, and comfort that make Loa Boots simply more. For the the main way that you guys are using this or hope to use it with climbing, or the most exciting way, approaching these these mountains deep in the Karakoram or or that are just harder to get to, what are the biggest advantages beyond it saves time? Do do you have to? Are you able to carry less gear because of that? Get in to specific places that you couldn't reach on foot? What what are the slate of advantages? Well, I would say that the advantages of climbing a mountain in the big mountainous areas like the Karakoram where we were this year and flying down is that you can obviously be down a lot quicker, which is which is a great thing. And you can often skip over the certain things which will be dangerous in that descent you obviously open yourself up to a hell of a lot of other danger which is the the counter argument and that's totally valid argument flying is is really dangerous but in the style that we climbed this thing gilmit tower this this year of using it as an approach to climbing the mountain and then flying back to civilization I mean, we, it enabled us to do something which should really have taken, I don't know, um, you know, at least a week or more, you know, several weeks if you do it in an expedition style in a couple of days, which was the really surreal thing for us. The really, the crazy thing, right? the, the thing that makes us have to pinch ourselves afterwards, um, that you can do something that very quickly and it not even be the main doesn't even have to be the main extravaganza of that month trip when we were there it was just one of several things that we were doing when we were there rather than that one thing that one thing taking 
a whole month or so. I guess that would be uh, one uh, massive advantage to climbing a mountain in the style that we did this spring. Yeah, and definitely I would think that we can go where you can't go by foot. You know, all other expeditions, basically, they came from the other side of the mountain because it's much longer to go in from this side and maybe also much more tricky. So I think to the place where you decide to land, weight doesn't matter because you can carry weight like as much as you want, like food and stuff. Like you're not very limited in this. Like you cannot carry too much, but I think still you can carry more than you can carry by foot in there on your own. So that's an advantage. And I think the place, you know, if you have good a good landing spot, you don't have much problems to land there. And the terrain below, you don't really care about as long as you know you can ta- land there and take off there again. Right. So while we've we we've gotten to Gumit Tower, let's, is that how you say it? Gumit? Gumit? I think so, yeah. Okay. Gumit Tower. I've only heard me or Fabi say it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So while we're on that, let's 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 keep talking about that. So Fabian, you were saying other teams in the past have tried to approach it from another side. No one had successfully climbed this tower. Can you guys explain w- what past attempts looked like, just uh, high level, and then yeah, what you guys did differently with the gliders again? Well, yeah, I guess this is actually a better answer to your previous question as well. Probably the reason that we managed to climb this mountain this year is because we could climb it from a side of the mountain which had been by no means impossible to get to, but very awkward to get to in the past, which meant that most attempts had been from the other side, the, I guess it's northeast side. But by using our winds, we managed to get into this sort of hanging uh, valley on the uh, on the southern side, which would be very difficult to walk to, and but but definitely not impossible. But it would take a lot longer to get there. Oh uh, yeah, it would take probably if you wanted to establish a base camp there. I don't. It's hard to say. But going off the last person who did establish a base camp on that side, but still a good day or so away from where we landed our paragliders. It took him, I think, five days or a bit more, I think, going off his report that he he wrote. So, yeah, we were able to go to that place, well, further than that place in about an hour with our wings, literally to the the Bergschrund, to the crevasse at the bottom of the route, uh, which totally fundamentally changes the how we were climbing. Yeah, it's the same mountain as these other previous attempts, but really it's a different mountain. So when you guys flew into Guma Tower, how much gear did you bring for to allow you to stay there? How long of a window did you guys have? What were the calculations like? Our our window was basically the flight back home to Europe <laughs> because we didn't have any uh, much time left. But the weather was good, and we took I think for two or three days worth of food and like full wreck for climbing because we actually didn't really know what to expect we knew it there might be going well it might be more technical but yeah we brought bb stuff some food but yeah we also had breakfast in karimabad and we planned to have like dinner at some point in karimabad without hiking so we didn't bring an enormous amount because also you have to carry it to the takeoff and we didn't bring big 
gliders. So we both, both me uh, and Will, we flow um, gliders in the size S. So we couldn't load them like with like 40 kilos or something. We had to like kind of still keep it as a little simple. How much does the size S, like the smaller glider setup, how much does the wing and all the all the associated gear just for flying, how much does all that weigh? Well, we were already pretty much at the at the limit of what our wings were able to take just just us without our climbing gear. But let's say our takeoff weight is our weight, so what we weigh is uh, each, um, and our harness and our wing. And so I guess our upper weight limit was 85 kilos, wasn't it, Fabi? Yeah, 85. Which we both weigh like 70 kilos. The wing weighs two and th- two or three kilos. Then our harness, our flying harness, this is, weighs, I don't know, three kilos or something like that. We're actually pretty close to that limit of 85, just mm-hmm. how we fly normally, which in theory would suggest that you can't carry anything else but this is only a very recommended thing and so we were actually flying with another maybe 20 or more i don't know what do you reckon 20 or 30 kilos yeah i think 15 to 20 because 15 to 20 also some stuff yeah that's true there was a third person which complicates the story a little bit which we haven't mentioned yet but there was a friend of ours jake who was on this uh, in pakistan with us at that time very, very good paraglider who came to the bottom of the mountain with us, but he didn't climb to the top of the mountain with us. But he flew in and he he carried a bit of our bivy stuff. And I think he carried a rope. I can't remember exactly. But basically, like a helicopter or a plane, a paraglider is sensitive to how much weight you can carry. And as it doesn't have an engine, it's even more sensitive, <laughs> as you can imagine. And so... It was a big question that we had was whether we would be able, what we should take with us, you know, like really what you take with you is already very uh, sensitive when you're going climbing a mountain in a fast style anyways, but it goes through a whole another level of weight saving when you're trying to fly in with your gear. And you're asking a lot of gravity as it is to fly, to take off at 3000 meters climb to six or 7,000 meters, fly 30 or 40 kilometers or whatever, and land at the bottom of a mountain without an engine, that's already asking a lot of the sky. And when you sat there at takeoff, feeling how heavy you are, and you've got a couple of sets of cams, crampons, axes, food for three days, a tent, ropes, all this kind of stuff, and you're looking out at the sky and you're thinking, this is... (laughs) I don't really understand how this is going to work. <laughs> I don't know how uh, this is like total optimism, but somehow the th- some air is going to rise up, carry us and all this shit with us, take us to 7,000 meters, and then we're going to fly into this mountain. It's a really one of the craziest things about this style of cross-country flying with climbing for me is how it is actually quite possible because we all like we managed it easily to get in there way overweight and not in big gliders we could have flown a glider another weight class above what we had and easily carried another 20 kilos we probably could have carried 40 kilos in there 
if we if we had a, if we took our bigger wings. So then, with with a bigger wing, that opens the possibilities to even more longer and more complex climbs. It seems like for sure. Yeah. Well. Yeah, you could carry what you want, really. You could carry a grand piano in there if you've got a big enough <laughs> if you've got a big enough wing. For example, if you if you if you think about tandem paragliders, I mean that's two people, and uh, with a tandem paraglider, you could easily carry um, a lot of weight because it's uh, you know, twice the meterage of a solo glider. In fact, I've got a friend here in Chamonix who uh, he goes and gets crystals from the mountains as a sort of a bit of he's a mountain guide but he also does that as a job and he flies with a tandem paraglider you know 30 or 40 kilos of rock down <laughs> down from the mountains with him because it's wow. easier than carrying it down in loads uh, he loads it up on his on his tandem paraglider and flies it down i guess one question i have whether it's going on the lighter side like you did for gourmet tower or heavier Let's say you bring however much gear and provisions you need for however long you think you're going to be out there. What happens if you're in a really vulnerable vulnerable position or the weather changes and you're stuck now kind of forced to do the very approach you were trying to avoid by flying in? Like do you, do you see that as a as a risk or something that could happen? Or like, what are your contingency plans if something like that happens? Yeah, definitely we have had backup plans or we thought about it. I mean, it seems sketchy and it is also sketchy because Damian and Antoine, for example, they got stranded on Spantic in bad weather. And suddenly you don't know your approach or you need to get out of there. Then it's a fine balance of waiting in the altitude for better weather but having not enough food or just taking the decision at some point to go down. And I think that we both followed the weather quite well for basically the in Karima, but you have internet, so you can do for the weather for the last months. We did it and it worked out fine. So in the weather window we actually used, I think we knew that we will have two to three days of good weather which allows you to kind of like find probably a takeoff place. But definitely if things go wrong, you need to decide at some point, maybe abandon the wing and just hike, try to hike it down or something. Or also if somebody gets injured with our wings, for example, we can't, we couldn't fly down the, the, the other person. But definitely we had inreaches and also like the helicopter rescue and stuff. So that makes it a little bit different. So, yeah, it is massively different with this type of climbing a mountain, though, because when you climb a mountain in a classical way, you know every single meter that you've gone up. And so worst case scenario, you can always feel your way back down the mountain the way you came up. That's always the, the sort of the what we have in our backs backs of our minds when we climb a mountain in a in a conventional style but in this style it is say one of the biggest differences which makes it different is that there's a huge part of the mountain that we don't know and that we haven't actually touched and 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 seen up close we've seen it from the air 
but we've not actually climbed it. So reversing down that would be really difficult. But I think you just have to justify to yourself somehow that it would somehow be possible if you couldn't if you couldn't take off. And that in conjunction with really, really having a good handle on what is happening weather wise is how we would how we tackle not ever having to be marooned in a place. But it could well happen and is it has happened. And it could well happen to us at some point, I think. So for Gulmit Tower, you guys flew in, bivied, and then started up the next morning. Is that right? So yeah, we left Karimabad, which is the town that we had been kind of living in that month, doing other flying and skiing and climbing projects around that part of Pakistan. We left there. What time do you think we took off? Maybe like 10 or 11? 11-ish, because we had a chill breakfast. We went up there, we waited. Yeah. Yeah, not before 11, I think. The thing about paragliding when you're flying cross-country is it's the opposite of alpinism in that we have quite late starts because the sun needs to heat the rock and the sides of the valley, which then heats the air, and then the air starts rising. And until you have these thermals that are rising, you can't go anywhere. You're grounded. So it's actually the opposite to alpinism in that kind of a way. So we went into this mountain. We had a we woke up late. We obviously we'd packed and everything in the days previously, but we woke up late, drank some coffee, have some omelette, some chai. Civilized. Chill a bit. Yeah. Yeah. Get get a Jeep. And it's so surreal because we're saying to ourselves over breakfast, shit, you know, in a couple of hours we're gonna be in we're gonna be at the bottom of the tower uh, in a place that it should take a week or two or whatever to get to. And we're just chilling, having a chill you know having a relaxing breakfast and then we get the jeep up slowly to the takeoff and even when you get to the takeoff you sit around for a little bit it's like the what you do as a paraglider you kind of sit around a little bit and look at the sky watch if the birds are climbing watch what's happening in the air so we need to find, be sure that the air is going up before we take off because with our overloaded wings and everything we're just going to be like a stone out of the sky if the air hasn't started heating up yet. So we actually started this whole mission in a in a very the opposite to how you start climbing missions so often, which is it which is uh, you know, in this anxious or no we were definitely anxious. Well I was definitely anxious. That wasn't that was no different. But um, you know, this kind of like a sort of hurried state in the dark in the morning kind of thing. I mean that came later, but this actual whole mission started in a bizarre way of a really lazy morning waiting for the thermals to start get the jeep up uh, to give us a two or three hundred meter sort of leg up onto the side of the valley from our hotel to where we could take off and start thermaling up to six or seven thousand meters and then fly into our valley so we did that it nearly all went wrong because basically these thermals they come in cycles they they turn on and they turn off and and i took off first happened to get into this really good thermic cycle just by complete chance and got catapulted up to, I don't know, six and a half thousand meters, maybe from three thousand meters in a few minutes. And Fabi and Jake, they took off a few minutes after me and just went down because this thermal, because this thermal had turned off. And so I was up at the bottom of a cloud, or kind of in the bottom of a cloud at six and a half thousand meters, looking down at these tiny, tiny specks of Fabi and Jake, three thousand meters below trying to start to thermal up 
and I could see just, I could fly from where I was in like 15 minutes to the bottom of Gullmit Tower. Absolutely no problem, but would, there was no point if they couldn't join me because, well, firstly, I didn't want to go and climb it on my own at all. And also because or you have to split all the gear between all three of you. So you don't know, no one person actually has the stuff to singularly climb the mountain. <laughs> it's split up between you. And Fabi and Jake did an amazing effort. And after, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes of what we call scratching, which is where you're staying really close into the mountain, trying to get tiny, tiny bits of air which are rising to kind of tread water, a bit like treading water in mm-hmm. a swimming pool, until this thermal turned back on and they could climb up to me, which they, which is what happened. So it was a bit of a tense start. We were sure it was at one point it just wasn't going to happen we, 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 because of bad luck with that thermal, really. Yeah, I also had really doubts on it because we were actually going really, really low and even lower than our ease takeoff that we used like all the days before. And at that point, when I had to traverse the ease takeoff, I was really like, oh, I don't know if we were going to make it. And it somehow the air was like, or the air was turning on again. And yeah, then we just like went up. And by that time, Will was already flying in and found a good landing spot uh, because it was now it was clear. I mean, it, that we will make it in once you're high enough. It isn't too big of an issue than going in and fly these 20 or 30k. Yeah. So that's how the whole the mission to Gullmit Tower started, um, flying in there. And then I landed maybe 30 or 40 minutes before Fabi and landed in this sort of bowl at the head of a big glaciated valley at about, uh, I don't know, how high was that? About 5,000 or just beneath 5,000 meters where, where I landed. Just beneath, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but it's, it's kind of crazy landing in those places because I mean, Fabi's done more of it than me. But it was crazy trying to choose where to land because you have all these normal kind of aerological things going on, which you're thinking about as a paraglider of how to land. So what is lee side? Where's the wind coming from? How am I going to slow down and kill my speed enough and land in a flat place? But then you also have these huge seracs on one side of the valley, which looked like they were releasing relatively regularly, these big wet wet sloughs on the south facing side of the valley which were setting setting off wet avalanches regularly and then these absolutely monster crevasses so in the end we landed on some like avalanche debris which was covering some crevasses and was underneath a cliff that was shielding us from these wet avalanches yet far enough away from these seracs on the other side of the valley so that we weren't threatened by them. So there's like suddenly a whole load of shit to think about. And as soon as we land, we go into the realm of the mountaineer, the climber, and we're no longer in the world of the paraglider. But you become very, you're not very agile because we've, so we've got all the climbing kit, kit and all the flying kit. And we can be agile in climbing mode and we can be agile in flying mode but to be agile with all our stuff on the glacier and move away from where a serac is falling or move across a glacier with all that stuff would have actually been quite difficult. So we had to choose that where we landed was going to be where we were going to put the tent up that night. 
and going to be safe to sleep and out of harm's way and where we could leave our wings when we went and climbed the mountain over the next days. So the landing spot is is pretty critical for something like this. Yeah, and we we still, I mean, like, we didn't know whether to bring skis or not because if you bring skis, you can take off on a flat glacier really well. If you don't bring skis, taking off on a flat glacier is quite hard because it's difficult to get the speed to uh, inflate your wing and all these kind of things. And, yeah, we didn't know exactly how to go about it. But, but yeah, that's how the first part of this Gullmit Tower uh, mission went and at that point we were there at the bottom of the mountain in the Bergschund effectively and we were suddenly into the world of the mountaineer from a very chilled uh, omelette and chai breakfast yeah how was the climbing on this thing yeah I mean the climbing we were uh, hiking or we were waking up very early uh, at like 2 a.m we set the alarm I guess and then we had breakfast and then it was kind of a snow couloir that uh, we knew it will be probably has avalanched and will be frozen. So it was kind of okay to make good progress in the altitude. And then the climbing, I think it was really good granite and we didn't know what to expect. If we expect good rock, bad rock, if it will work, if we need to aid climb or whatever. But I think it was just one of these days where every corner you go right or left it's the right choice and it makes it a kind of a super smooth yet technical climb. Uh, and we were really lucky with our choices. And it was, I think it was just like the flying in, it was pure pleasure. <laughs> yeah, the climbing went really well. It was, uh, it pay, it was one of those climbs that pays you back for all the times that you try that crack on the left and it turns into absolutely nothing. And then you try that ledge system over on the right and it just tapers out into a blank wall and it just went. It was crazy. Sometimes that happens and, and it went in a really good way. It was technical. It was steep. It was some, definitely some of the more technical mixed climbing of that style that I've done at that altitude. And it was, yeah, really, really, really good sort of granite, well-protected, but burly mixed climbing. Yeah, and maybe 10 or 12 pitches on top of a 500-meter kua, which we which we soloed, but the 10 or 12 pitches were all kind of packed a bit of a punch. It was, it was sim- similar to Alaska, actually. It really reminds me a lot of, like, climbing on Mount Hunter or something, um, like uh, nice icy runnels in with good, uh, good granite on either side. Nice. And then the summit is... Is about 5,800 meters, is that right? Something like that, yeah. So did you guys bring your wings up to the top with you? Did you climb with them? No, we uh, had the plan to climb the mountain in like a, with light bags in a kind of a fast style. We didn't also, we didn't bring BB gear or anything to the, to the mountain. We really wanted to climb it in one push because I think we were more more enjoyable in the snow cool war in the morning and having lighter packs. And I don't know if the takeoff on top of the summit would be actually really doable. But another thing, even if it would be doable, it at some point you need to make choices, you know, like it's like uh, Will said with the bringing skis, not bringing skis, bringing this, bringing this. 
then if you do take it to the next level it's climbing bringing going down by with the ropes that you have or bringing the the wing and then flying down and already having flown in like i think at some point you can make it too too crazy or we already didn't knew if we're gonna make it like that so for us i think we really wanted to do it step by step fly in climb and fly out and not overcomplicating anything it was already complicated enough <laughs> yeah easily complicated enough yeah early evolution of fly and climb is you you or climb and fly you climb the mountain you fly off right now you guys you're flying to the base and then climbing is that the the ideal scenario though where you fly in then you climb up and then you fly off is that is that kind of the the ideal application i'd say if it makes sense then that is the ideal thing each mountain trying to use I don't. I have no interest in trying to use a wing for a mountain that it's not logical to use a wing for that mountain. For. Right. I've no, it's got to make sense. I wouldn't want it to be like a party trick, you know. It's not like uh, doing something like as a just for the sake of doing. It. Yeah, it was like a stunt or something. In this case, the way this mountain was in the valley that it was, it just made absolute logic to climb it in this way with a cross country paragliding approach and descent back from the bottom of the mountain and it allowed us to climb this really cool route on an unclimbed mountain in this style i don't think the thing to do is to go out of your way to try and fly in and climb mountains and fly off when it doesn't for some reason make sense if it's easier to just walk in there climb it in a conventional style i i think i would personally always be for that i totally agree with will in this case the route was short enough the approach was long like long and maybe too long for us so it makes sense to do it in a in a cross-country flying style but basically if you have a mountain that you know it takes three four days and you need to have a big base camp or you just can drive to the base of it, then why overcomplicating things with bringing a wing? But I think if you want to think about it, and if your goal is like we, our goal was in Pakistan to ski a lot, to climb some, to fly some cross country. And if you look around in these valleys, then you will find other possibilities and other mountains where it makes sense. Uh, but yeah it shouldn't be too contrived all this like we were lucky it went so smooth and it was kind of a logical way to do it it could have been also completely different you know but... mm-hmm. yeah it's definitely not all mountains lend themselves to being climbed in this way i think a lot do though i think a hell of a lot do and my mind's been working overtime since this trip thinking about how many mountains i know of or or i saw on that trip or i've seen on other trips or that would lend themselves to this style and it's also without giving anything away is there like a perfect flying climb vision adventure out there that that you guys are working on well i'd say right now that this one that we just did was pretty close to perfect in terms (laughs) of like how how it how it 
how it how smooth went, it went. <laughs> how smooth it went. We still yeah. don't believe it. We still don't believe it. This style has so much potential to fuck up. Definitely, yeah. And it didn't on this one. So I would say for now, that was it was really close to perfect. But we're super we're super, super psyched to look for more mountains that we can climb in that style. And I think that the way that we find them is by flying. Because this mm, is the other yeah. the flip side, the not flip side, the other side, the other beauty of this cross-country paragliding climbing thing is that it's a absolutely fundamentally different type of expedition, if you want to call it an expedition. The sort of classical way of doing climbing an unclimbed mountain or an unclimbed line or whatever in the greater ranges, let's say, keep it to Pakistan for now, is, you know, you, you fly to Pakistan, you drive for a couple of days to the end of civilization, you pay a load of people to walk with you and carry all your stuff for a few days to get to a base camp, then you have three or four weeks in time to try and climb this thing. And that's the classic way of climbing a mountain in the Himalaya and the Karakoram. And it, and we have both done a bunch of trips like that, and I hope to do more in the future, and it's awesome. But this approach of living in a civilization, living in a town like we were on this on this trip, you know, really living in civilization, but then going out into the wildest possible places that would take even longer than it would to go on these classical expeditions in short amounts of time and being able to explore them. That is a, it's just, it's a, just a completely different way of approaching climbing in these countries. And it's really a massive breath of fresh air because the, the the classical style of being in a base camp and really pinning yourself down to one valley, one mountain, and maybe one line even, it's super. It's it's amazing. It's really exciting, and it is the way to climb most mountains. I'm I'm sure of it. But it also can really stifle creativity sometimes. I find and can really sort of trap you into one idea. When when we were on this trip, we weren't didn't even have this Goldman idea in our minds before we went on the trip. Not at all. Not at all. We were just exploring by air this part of the Karakoram, and Fabi had already explored it a lot the year before, but we were just exploring it more. And then we were looking at this thing, and we were thinking, shit, that makes complete sense to climb in this kind of a style. And so for me, this trip really opened my eyes to being in Pakistan in a different formula, with a different formula to climbing than the classic expedition sort of uh, tent and porters and uh, advanced base camps and that kind of style. So it, and, and it changes the way, the angle that you look at the mountains at completely as well. You're looking at them with a completely different mindset and therefore it will allow things to be done just in a, with a fresh set of eyes. I guess kind of to wrap up here, you said lots of things could have gone wrong for this Gulmit tower climb flying in there and there's lots of logistical things right that could have gone wrong you guys also said earlier that y- you know it, it it is dangerous particularly as you're learning have you guys had some some gnarly crashes or injuries i mean is it something that is kind of like a rite of passage in paragliding yeah i've had some injuries i don't know if will had some injuries but i think they're more 
because of the fast progression. I think paragliding, you can learn completely safe. I think a lot of people that learn it just to fly down from mountains, they learn it not properly because in France, for example, you have the, the right of free flight. You don't need to make a license. You can go in a shop, buy a wing and fly down the mountain, you know? I've been asking myself since I started flying, which is more dangerous, climbing or flying? Constantly asking ourselves that, who, people who do both. Um, and it is impossible to answer just because in flying, just like with climbing, there are really dangerous types of flying and then there are relatively safe types of flying, just like there is safe types and dangerous types of climbing. So it depends what you're doing, really. So it's hard to answer but it is really dangerous paragliding for sure it's definitely got objective danger a little bit as well a bit like we have in alpinism so things that can fall on your head which you didn't think were going to fall on your head for example in in alpinism there is a bit of that in paragliding air is very unpredictable we're always trying to predict it but it still does some crazy shit sometimes and can just knock your wing out of the sky and so that i would class in the same in the same sort of classification as objective danger in alpine climbing just as a really experienced if you're a really experienced mountaineer or alpinist you will often hear of people having horrific accidents some of them are people who you genuinely feel have been incredibly unlucky. And a lot of them, you're just thinking, well, that was just dumb. You were in over your head or something, or you made some really bad decisions, didn't have experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that exists in paragliding as well, in terms of uh, sometimes we'll hear of a really, really experienced, extremely um, accomplished and sensible paraglider who's had a really nasty accident. And then you'll hear about so many things which you think, wow, that was really avoidable. So, um, but yeah, it is, uh, it is for sure a dangerous sport, paragliding. There's no, no doubt about it. And definitely mixing paragliding and alpine climbing in, in the big mountains has got a lot of, a lot of dangers without a doubt. Okay. That was that was fascinating, guys. Thanks for taking some time to chat. Cheers, thanks. Yeah, yeah it's good to good to chat about. It. There's a lot of stuff to uh, unload when you're talking about a completely new sport with two people who have become geeks in that sport. <laughs> that was great. It was great. <laughs> All right, great. Thanks, Will. Thanks, Fabi. You can find John Bouchard's classic article from the 1988 AIJ. Paragliders in Modern Alpinism at publications.americanalpineclub.org. We'll put a link at the Cutting Edge website. Thanks to Fabian Boulle, Will Sim, and Michael Levy for this fascinating look at the state of the art of paragliding and alpinism today. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tenmaker, with additional support from PolarTech, Gnarly Nutrition, and Loa Boots. Sierra McGivney helped produce this episode and Jason Burton performed the music for The Cutting Edge. For more stories from the wide world of climbing, check out the American Alpine Club podcast, with in-depth stories about the many issues facing climbers today, as well as legacy stories from climbing's past. Until next time, this is Dougal McDonald 
wishing you happy climbs.